do I believe what Rome is teaching and what is clearly set out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, or will I believe what Scripture teaches? For example, Rome still teaches that justification includes the inward renewal of the believer, whereas Scripture clearly teaches that that inward renewal is a consequence of justification, not the cause of justification. We've got two completely different systems here. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Michael Reeves. Michael serves as president and professor of theology at Union School of Theology in Oxford, England, a local church minister, and director of the European Theologians Network. He's also the author of a number of books, including Why the Reformation Still Matters, which he co-authored with Tim Chester. Today, Michael and I discuss what the Protestant Reformation was really all about, and whether or not it's still relevant today. He reflects on the relationship between Protestants and Roman Catholics, explains what Martin Luther was really trying to accomplish when he posted his 95 Theses, and responds to the idea that the Reformation is responsible for widespread disunity among Christians today. Let's get started. Well, Michael Reeves, thank you so much for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today. Great to be with you, Matt. So I, I kind of want to get your input on something that happened just a couple years ago that I think uh, will help to illustrate questions that a lot of modern Christians have. Uh, so back on October 26th in 2017, just four days before the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting his 95 theses uh, on that church door, Pope Francis held uh, what I think could be described as an ecumenical meeting with leaders from the Church of Scotland, which is a, a Protestant denomination, as I'm sure you're aware. And they met at the Vatican, and, and at the meeting, he said something that I think was pretty interesting. Uh, he said, let us thank the Lord for the great gift of being able to live this year in true fraternity, no longer as adversaries after long centuries of estrangement and conflict. And so, and he's made a number of other statements in uh, the months since that time, that kind of are to a similar end. And so I think that leads many to wonder, uh, does the Protestant Reformation still matter when we have things like that coming from the mouth of the Pope? Yes, but behind that assumption that the Reformation might be an event of the past is usually one of two assumptions. One is that the Reformation 500 years ago was really a moral cleanup act where the church had got a bit grubby, was doing things uh, inappropriately. And there was a chance really for people to behave better. And that happened. People did behave better. And so job done. The Reformation's over. Or it's coming from the assumption that uh, there isn't really any disagreement between evangelicals and Catholics today, or not of enough substance to keep us apart. Um, after all, it could be argued, uh, both evangelicals and Catholics believe in a salvation, uh, a justification that is by faith through grace. Hmm. And so it's quite easy to talk about the, the, the similarities we have and feel, surely, if we've got that level of agreement, what's separating us? So the, the idea that it was just a, a moral cleanup and the desire for everyone who calls themselves Christian to, to find a real unity together, a powerful 
impulses to say the Reformation's over. Yeah, and to think of um, those impulses reaching all the way to the top of the Roman Catholic Church yes. and manifesting themselves in the Pope, it, it does it does seem like it could be indicative of something something greater. Um, uh, a prominent American theologian and scholar, Stanley Howaross, uh, who is who taught for many years at Duke Divinity School, he again a couple of years ago said, uh, "I like many Protestants don't see the gulf." between us and our Catholic brothers and sisters as particularly pronounced. The separation I once saw as default now makes less sense to me. So it seems like he's speaking there um, maybe more to some of the doctrinal distinctions that we, we maybe would be used to when we think about the Reformation. How would you respond to that kind of a sentiment? Well, there have been Christians who've rejoiced um, in the last few years at how, uh, for example, um, Evangelicals have rejoiced at um, the Vatican, a Roman Catholic uh, uh, spokesman, talking about how th- there is actually agreement between evangelicals and Catholics because we believe in a justification that is by faith, and we, we all agree on that. But there was never any disagreement at that point. The difference at the Reformation between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church was what exactly justification means. For the Roman Catholic Church, justification did 500 years ago and still does today include a process of internal renewal. And and, and this really started with the idea that justification can be best defined by Romans 5.5, that God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he's given us. And so the idea is God pours his love into our hearts, transforming us internally, making us more and more righteous, more and more just, more and more justified. And so by this internal change, we become more inherently in ourselves righteous. But what the reformers meant was not that justification is a process of internal renewal. They were saying this is precisely what Romans 4 says is not the case. Um, In Romans 4, we see that the blessed man is not the one who has no sin, but whose sin is covered. God is a God, Romans 4, 5, who justifies the wicked or the ungodly. So the Reformers were stressing, no, justification is not a process of internal transformation. It's a divine declaration. God speaking his promise, declaring that a believer, because only because of God's kindness, because of his word, a believer is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so the mm. righteousness isn't an internal thing that they, they've worked at or improved. It is it's a clothing. It's an external thing. It's found in Christ, not in themselves. So the very understanding of justification is entirely different between Roman Catholicism and the Reformation. So do you think that's that's a uh, common kind of issue that we have when thinking about the similarities and differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants, namely the definition of terms? We, we use some of the same language, but maybe the understanding behind those words is very different. Do you think that's, that's a, a relevant uh, way of understanding a, n- a number of doctrinal areas? Absolutely. I think that um, it's the case that when Roman Catholics and evangelicals talk about grace or sin or faith, um, 
or union with Christ, with any of these things, actually profoundly different things are meant by those same words. And so we can say we have, and we do have, um, evangelicals and Roman Catholics believe in sin, faith, grace, union with Christ. But each of those things we mean radically, substantially different things by them. And I think confusion on that point doesn't just hit um, Roman Catholic evangelical relations. I think it hits into um, everyday, the everyday life of evangelicals, um, whether they're thinking about relations with Roman Catholics or not. Because I think that so many evangelicals being confused on, say, justification or union with Christ, not having the reformers' clarity there, means they don't enjoy the robust comfort that the reformers found through getting real gospel clarity on these doctrines. Hmm. So it sounds like you're saying you, you think there's been a dulling of our own understanding of what it means to be Protestant um, that that you would think we would need to recover. Is that correct? I, I think I'd say in every generation there's, there's a need for teachers uh, to ensure that our churches are filled with clear news on the truths of the Reformation, which are the heart of the gospel. Hmm. How can we be saved? Uh, on what basis does God accept sinners? Um, wh- what does it mean that God is gracious to us? Can I be sure of my salvation? Those are the kind of questions that the Reformation dealt with, and those are questions that have not gone away in their importance. And if believers are to find joy and assurance in their Christian lives, they need clarity on these truths. When thinking about some of those those truths that you mentioned, some of the key doctrinal issues that the reformers raised and prioritized, um, do you think there are any of those where we are closer together with Roman Catholics than we once were maybe 500 years ago? Mm. Um, let me pick one. I think uh, there are few I, I could pick, but our understanding of sin, I think, um, has, has, I think, shifted um, at a popular level um, for many Christians um, towards a more classically Roman Catholic understanding. And so you see this um, just in um, all the self-help books that there's in our society today, uh, an idea that we are, we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, um, that sin is not something that goes so deep in us that we can't sort ourselves out, right? We, you know, we, we hear this the whole time, don't we? Mm-hmm. And the reformers, in contrast, were saying, no, no, the problem of sin goes so deep in us, we can't sort ourselves out, which sounds incredibly gloomy news. Um, but actually, it's it's the light view of sin that's saying sin is not a great big problem. We can sort it out ourselves. Put all the weight of responsibility for sorting ourselves out, for getting ourselves right with God, onto ourselves. And, mm. and that was exactly what Martin Luther struggled with, why he, he found himself, and, and so many of the reformers before they were converted found themselves in a similar situation where they were... Um, they were racked with anxiety and 
guilt wondering about their standing before God because they thought my standing before God depends on my sorting my sin out. And it was seeing that, no, no, the problem of sin goes so deep in us, it goes down into our hearts, um, affecting the very things we want. Now, you ask, you know, how is that, um, how is that today? I think we see that sort of view of sin um, in teaching that tells us to simply change our behavior, mm. in moralistic teaching and preaching. And such moralism, which simply tells us to sort ourselves out, assumes we can sort ourselves out and make ourselves better. And what, what the deep view of sin that the reformers had does is it makes your compassion leap forward. When you have a deep view of sin and see people are enslaved, they're addicted to sin, and they're slaves to sin, they can't simply pull themselves out of it. What it does is it makes your compassion leap forward and see here are people who don't just need to be shouted at and told to try harder. They need the keys to get them out of the prison. And the one thing with the power to free them is the gospel. So when you have that deep view of sin, you know what these people need is not being told to do better. They need to hear about a kind saviour who's done everything for them so that their hearts change, so that they actually want him. And therefore, they begin to want him more than they want their sin. Yeah, the, the tricky thing, it seems, with some of this is uh, that I think few evangelical Christians will say, would kind of openly say, well, you know, we just need to do better and that that will save us. That will make us mm -hmm. right with God. That will make mm -hmm. us totally happy. It's not quite that blunt, but, you know, I think you're right. There can be this trend towards emphasizing what we must do and maybe the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of what God has done for us is more in the background I wonder what you think we can learn from the reformers in how they prioritize, even just how they talked about the gospel, that could be an antidote to um, the kind of the situation that we're in today, where we don't deny the gospel's relevance, but maybe yeah. it just doesn't play a central role in our own thinking. Yeah, I, I, I think you see it in, in so many Christian lives where people will say, look, of course I believe in um, in justification by faith alone. I believe in salvation by grace alone. I believe these things. But even so, there can be that sneaking suspicion that still, because I've not behaved as well as I could do in the last few days, therefore, I'm slightly out of grace. And I need to get myself back into grace. So there's, it very quickly comes around to the idea that on the basis of my performance and my feelings um, is, is my actual communion with God. And that just sneaks in ever so quickly and easily. And so uh, this was something Martin Luther struggled with himself. Um, so he said about 15 years after the Reformation got going, uh, he was at a supper with some friends and he said, you know, my greatest temptation is this. I think I don't have a gracious God. Hmm. Isn't, isn't that an extraordinary thing to hear hmm. from Martin Luther? But even someone who knows gospel truth can 
so easily daily forget it and think we relate to God on the basis of our performance and how, how holy we're feeling. And so Martin Luther, he loved to emphasize the externality of God's word and his promises, um, the externality of our righteousness. And so what he would do is he, he liked to write out Bible verses so he could see them outside himself. You know, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Write it out and see the truth is out there, unchanging, uh, not dependent on how I feel about it. And so you see how Martin Luther dealt with his own doubts. I think we can learn great lessons from that for today. Hmm. Yeah, take us back to uh, Martin Luther and that that pivotal day in October of 1517 when he posted this list of 95 theses or statements on the church door. Why did he do that, and what was he hoping to accomplish with that? Um that happened uh, just a few weeks after a slightly lesser-known event, uh, which sets it up. Um, he, he published a 97 theses <laughs> before, <laughs> in, in, in which um, he was really taking on Aristotle. And Aristotle got into the church's teaching. And Aristotle's ethics was basically a fake it till you make it. And Aristotle said, we become righteous by doing righteous deeds. E.g. keep doing something, and by the, by the habit, by the repetition of the doing, you become a righteous person. And Luther wanted to say, no, no, we are made uh, righteous by being born again and clothed with Christ's righteousness, and therefore we behave differently. So his whole difference was, we're not changed from the outside in, we're changed from the inside, from our heart's and that changes us on the outside. And so a few weeks later, when it came to um, posting his 95 theses, he was wanting to object against this idea that the um, what happens on the outside could change us um, in our relationship with God, um, could change us in our standing. And particularly, he was gunning for indulgences. Hmm. Um, and indulgences were... Um, the, it was basically a, a way of getting time off purgatory. This uh, purgatory was a, a waiting place for heaven when it was considered, since um, justification is a process of becoming righteous, you're never going to be righteous enough for heaven by internal right. transformation by the time you die, so you need longer. So purgatory gives you longer to be purged of your sins. Hmm. And were, were people just sitting around there in the clouds then? Like, kind of what did they view was happening actually in purgatory? Um, the idea was, um, there are a few different portrayals of it, but normally it was perceived as a hellish experience. Hmm. Mm. Um, and so the, the, the man who was really in Luther's sights, um, an indulgent seller called Johann Tetzel, um, he, he was really a scoundrel in how he was uh, selling, literally selling these indulgences. And there's um, a famous sermon in which he said, listen, do you hear the screams of your parents and your grandparents in purgatory who are saying even now, but for a little money, you could spare us all this pain. Mm, Put wow. your money in the drum, and they'll be free. 
or his famous jingle was um, that you um, place your money in the coffer and at that moment the soul from purgatory will, will, will leap out, will spring out. So it, it was a very crass selling of time off purgatory. And, and for Luther, that entirely undid you know, his, the time evolving understanding of the gospel. So when he posted those theses then and objected to this, this man, Tetzel, uh, did he view that as an attack on the Roman Catholic Church in a more broad sense, or did he view that as an aberration that he wanted to see fixed? Uh, was he trying to kind of signal a breaking away, or, or kind of what were his ultimate intentions? No, he, 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 he didn't want a breaking away. Um, he wanted to reform the church. And he didn't really know what he was getting into either. Um, and so what happened was a string of debates um, with Roman Catholic theologians um, in which what happened is they pressed him, saying that he was going, uh, in what he was saying, he was going against the Pope. And the more they pressed him on how he was denying the Pope's authority, the more he was relying on Scripture's supreme authority. Hmm. And that pushed him to start seeing, we've got a choice here. It is Scripture to be supreme, uh, the, the, the trumping authority um, that can overturn all other authority claims. So there are, we all listen to different authorities, to, um, to the saints of old, to reliable theologians, to church elders. But what's going to have the final word? Will it be scripture or will it be the Pope? And he began to see, if you say that there is some other authority than scripture, for example, the Pope, then the church can no longer be reformed. And it's the synagogue of Satan because God's word is no longer ruling there. And that's where he started using dramatic language about the Pope as Antichrist, because he was saying if, if the Pope is effectively replacing Scripture, we've got a direct fight with the gospel happening. So that, that leads into, I think, one of the maybe the biggest critiques of the Reformation that we often hear, and, and namely that it led to this kind of radical individualism, uh, and, and particularly mm. even in, in reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible, so people will often say, you know, Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers paired with these new translations of the Bible in the languages of the people. You know, Luther is famous for translating the Bible into German so that you know, his people could actually read God's word. That that ultimately resulted in you know, the situation we have today where anyone can read the Bible and anyone can decide essentially what it means on their own. And people will claim that the Reformation was a big part in leading to this. Do you think that's a, a fair critique? Uh, is, there, is there any truth in that? Or is that, is that not necessarily uh, a fair way to view things? I, I have to be blunt. I think it, it's wildly misleading as an idea. Because um, the Reformation conviction that Scripture is the supreme authority doesn't mean that I, as an individual, read it all by myself and um, I can come to an opinion that is entirely novel and in contrast um, and contradicting what the church has always said. Um, scripture is supreme, but I read it 
within um, the community of faith. And that idea that the Reformation might have fosters an individualism just really forgets where where people were at. Uh, large uh, percentages, it depends which country you were in, but large percentages of each population in Europe at the time were illiterate. And so scripture had to be read to them as a community. And what actually happened with the Reformation um, was not a growing individualism of that sort, which is more a post-enlightenment thing. What actually happened was that people had been wrapped up in personal anxiety because of a performance-based understanding of how they stood before God. And they moved to being taught together the gospel. And so coming together as a community under gospel teaching. And so clear gospel teaching was actually bringing people to a shared faith in a way that hadn't quite been the case because uh, before the Reformation, because in medieval Roman Catholicism, um, your knowledge of the faith um, wasn't really expected. You could, you could have mm. virtually no knowledge of any catechism or, um, or, or creed, and that would be generally expected. But with Reformation teaching, people came together as communities with shared convictions. So the idea that the Reformation um, underpinned that sort of individualism is, is just reading the history all wrong. Hmm. So another another critique that's often levied against the reformers uh, is that um, even among themselves, there quickly became uh, developed many divisions and almost a schismatic spirit where uh, every little thing uh, would be a cause to divide and even you know <laughs> write these angry letters and treatises mm-hmm. against each other. And that really it, it fractured the church in a million pieces and a fracturing that really hasn't, uh, we haven't uh, come out of uh, even 500 years later. Uh, again, how would you respond to that kind of critique? Mm. Uh, that critique particularly works if you think that church unity is to be found through an institution. Mm. And so Roman Catholicism will look more united because there is a single institution. But actually, there is great diversity within Roman Catholicism. Uh, Protestants can look more disunited because of all the different denominations. But actually, if you look at evangelicals across the centuries, um, the, the, the descendants of the Reformers around the world, there is a remarkable agreement in uh, core Christian teaching that is shared. And, and, and some work was done on this um, by um, Jim Packer and Thomas Oden a few years ago, where they looked at different evangelical statements of faith that have been made over the last um, half century or so. And they examined, I think it was something like 76 documents and showed the remarkable degree of unity um, that there was doctrinally. And so it's really um, a misunderstanding. It's, it's really misrepresenting things um, to say that there's, there's this, all this um, division among evangelicals that there isn't in Roman Catholicism. It's, it's really 
that comes about through having understood unity in an institutional sense. But, hmm. but that's, that's not how the church is constituted. Um, and this was something the reformers were fighting for, that the, the church is not um, an institution built on um, the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. Um, it is founded on Scripture. So if you had to boil down, uh, and this is maybe a, an unfair kind of question, but <laughs> if you had to boil down the Reformation's contributions to global Christianity, to just the, the Christian church as a whole, you know, defined as broadly as, as it could be defined, uh, if you had to boil it down to the top three contributions that the Reformation <laughs> has made, what would you choose? The Reformation brings believers joy. The reformational truths that the reformers fought for bring a joy that no other Christian tradition can enjoy. Because that would be my number one. Hmm. Uh, because without knowing that you can, because of Christ's sufficient sacrifice, boldly approach your Father in heaven and call him Abba, without knowing that, without knowing that he is so gracious that he would, um, he would send his son as the atonement, uh, as a once-for-all sacrifice, that he's so gracious in that. Um, without knowing the security of our acceptance and therefore how gracious a, a God we have, you cannot have such joy in God. And related to that, um, God is not so glorified in any other presentation of the gospel you might see in Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. And God is not so glorified as he is in reformational teaching. Because in reformational teaching, sin is not a small problem and therefore Christ is not a small saviour. Uh, we have the problem of a great sin and we have a great saviour. And so the depth of our problem and the magnitude of Christ's grace and sacrifice show to us the, the beauty and the range and the magnificence of God's glory. So joy and glory, I think, would be two key takeaways um, for the Reformation. Other than that, I, I would be split between two other doctrines, if you don't mind. <laughs> um, I can't do three. Um, I, I would say scripture alone, having, having scripture as supreme authority and justification by faith alone. But those two doctrines are really giving those key takeaways in Christian life, joy, joy for us and glory for God. So many, in the, many have noted that the West is becoming uh, more and more secular less and less Christian, at least yes. explicitly. And uh, I think we see increasingly, uh, we found that a lot of Protestants have uh, started to link arms with Roman Catholics to join together around certain social issues uh, mm. that are important for both camps. And I wonder, do you feel like that's a, a fruitful path forward for Protestants, evangelicals more specifically? Is that something we should be pursuing more of? Um, or is that ultimately going to be uh, um, hurtful to our own evangelical distinctives? Right. right. I think uh, 
if, if we're to do that, there needs to be great clarity on the difference between co-belligerence, a, a um, fighting together for a, a shared value, and co-belief. And we mm. need to be clear those are different things. So if we're clear on that, I can't see there being any problem with evangelicals and Roman Catholics campaigning together on, say, the abortion issue. Um, we're, we would share belief on abortion. But that mustn't be allowed then to obscure the fact that we do have real theological differences real theological differences that are not pernickety. It's not just the difference between um, of one word, justification by faith and justification by faith alone, as the reformers would say. Mm. That can sound like it's a picky difference. It's an entirely different understanding of how it is that we get right with God. And for the sake of our joy, for the sake of our assurance, we mustn't give up that clarity on how evangelical and Catholic doctrines are different. Hmm. So then kind of a follow-up question to that. Um, I think it's increasingly common to hear, uh, as, as we heard in the quote from Pope Francis, but yeah. hear both Roman Catholics and evangelicals refer to the other side as, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ or those who worship, you know, the same, ultimately the same God and are, you know, in the same family, so to speak. Um, should we consider Roman Catholics to be our brothers and sisters in Christ? Mm. This this comes back to the issue of um, whether the, um, the Reformation was dividing the church. The Reformers never thought it was because they're saying if if you won't um, if you won't come to God through the gospel, you're not a Christian. And so if you won't be part of His Church, where the Word of God is purely taught. You're not part of the church. Hmm. Um, so it was their definition of church that um, that meant they were seeing we're not splitting the church at all. Um, the church is being reformed here. And so to come to what does that mean about um, uh, Roman Catholic friends? Well, I think it's it's quite possible to say, and I, I believe it's the case, that there are true believers in Roman Catholic churches. I think that's that's very hard to deny. But I think they're confused, and it's wrong of them to remain within Roman Catholic churches. And the reason um, that it's wrong of them to remain is because R Rome is not teaching the gospel as Scripture teaches it. And I don't expect, if you, if you go into a Roman Catholic church, I don't expect you to hear the gospel clearly taught. Now, you may. It is possible you may. And I remember reading Charles Spurgeon once describing how he, he went into a Roman Catholic church in Italy and heard the priest so warmly speaking of Christ, and he was thrilled mm. um, that Christ was warmly spoken of. But that doesn't mean then that what Christ has done for us and the nature of the gospel was clearly articulated. So I think we need to say, um, yes, there will be brothers and sisters who are in the Roman Catholic Church, 
but that doesn't mean that the Roman Catholic Church teaches the gospel. They really need to come out to the church. Hmm. So yeah, if, if a Roman Catholic friend or family member, uh, someone you really loved and cared about, were to sit down with you and ask you why you're a Protestant and not a Roman Catholic, what would you say to that person? I would say scripture persuades me of the truth of the gospel. And what I see in the writings of Paul and the New Testament and all of scripture flatly goes against what Rome teaches. And so I'm left with a choice. Do I believe what Rome is teaching and what is clearly set out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, or will I believe what Scripture teaches? And I'm left with that choice. Hmm. And Scripture proves itself to be the Word of God. I will go with the Word of God rather than the teachings of man. Um, For example, um, Rome still teaches that... um, Tradition is to be respected and venerated as much as Scripture. Uh, It still teaches in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that justification includes the inward renewal of the believer. So it's forgiveness and inward renewal. Whereas Scripture clearly teaches that that inward renewal is a consequence of justification, not the cause of justification. Our justification is a divine declarative act. We've got two completely different systems here. And if a Roman Catholic is to be honest, they need to look at these two competing messages and make their choice. Will they go with scripture or with what Rome is teaching? And if if they are willing, and it is a big cultural jump for so many Roman Catholics, Um, for whom there's this uh, love for Mary and the the, uh, Roman Catholicism often so bound up with close family, it can be a very difficult difficult social jump. But that jump is a jump into the gospel, which is a jump into assurance and joy and true fellowship of the true church. And Mm. so it's the jump into life. And it's a, yes, it's a hard jump, but a jump worth making. Hmm. Yeah, if there's someone listening right now who, who hearing you say these things is, is interested in maybe dipping his or her toe into the waters of some of these reformers and their writings, mm. uh, what are one or two first steps that you would recommend in terms of uh, things to read uh, to really start actually hearing these reformers' voices for themselves? Right. Um, I would suggest um, uh, uh, one good place to go would be Martin Luther's The Freedom of a Christian, uh, which particularly looking at uh, at justification and what it means to be a Christian. And after that, I'd say read some Puritans. Now, the Puritans sometimes can take just a few pages for you to get into them. They're they're not always uh, immediately... um, easy reading. But if you read some Richard Sibbs, I'd start with a bruised read. Uh, Richard Sibbs, S-I-B-B-E-S. Richard Sibbs, the bruised read, is a great place to go, simply to see more clearly who Christ is. Hmm. Uh, I'd I'd read some John Owen. Read John Owen on the person of Christ. 
or communion with God. Uh, and John Owen's communion with God is just a beautiful work showing the specific communion that believers have with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit. And you see in reading these truths, this is not uh, truths just for the head, but they are transformative for our lives. They bring delight, they bring assurance, they bring us a sweeter communion with God. If you'll read these people, your Christian life will be greatly enriched. Well, Michael, thank you for spending some time today talking with us about the Reformation, about its legacy, and about what we can learn and continue to learn from these figures even today. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Matt. It's been great to be with you. That was Michael Reeves on what we can learn from the Protestant Reformation, even 500 years later. For more, be sure to check out the book that he co-authored with Tim Chester for Crossway, Why the Reformation Still Matters, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.